you're listening to Ethosphere. Now here's your host, my dad. Hello and welcome to Ethosphere. You're here with your boy, Nathan Alex Orona. Thank you for journeying with me today. Today we have episode three, part two of carrying your sacred space, learning to navigate the world in your full power. So let's get to it. We ended last week with a practical assignment. We were to go into the world and practice kindness. Not just that, but we were also supposed to stay in our center, even if it became uncomfortable. The first step in carrying your sacred space into the world is cultivating your center. And we do this by understanding that the world, the world doesn't care if you are comfortable or not. The world does not care if you are happy or sad. Your sacred space, your center, is found in how you choose to hold yourself in spite of the world. Practice getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And the way that we do this is through the practice of meditation, prayer, contemplative practices that are all oriented towards your purpose. Okay, let's see how the Buddha dealt with this issue. Siddhartha, the pre-enlightened one, decided to sit underneath a Bodhi tree. This was a tree that yielded figs, and not to create a, a parallel too early, but the fruit that Adam and Eve first ate was most likely a fig. But let us venture on. As Gautama sat under this tree, he pledged to himself, I am going to sit here until I dry up, until I wither, until I die, if need be. It was then in Siddhartha Gautama's life that the demon lord Mara arrived on the scene like Jay-Z and Queen Bee rolling up to the Grammys. You know, not to create a parallel, but the story of Siddhartha Gautama, it starts to sound a lot like Jesus's struggle with Satan in the desert. So Mara is this demon and has a legion of demons that follow him and they launch a barrage of attacks. And during those attacks, every weapon that they try against Siddhartha, Siddhartha just sits there. And all the weapons that are thrown against him turn to flowers. So what does that mean? What does this mean? As the weapons of the world are forged and deployed against you, you get to choose how you respond to them. The weapons turn to flowers against Gautama because he did not react. I'm going to say this again. The weapons turn to flowers because Gautama remained in his practice and did not react. Slow yourself. Breathe. Sit in your center and choose not to react. This is the practice. If someone decides to belittle you, learn to turn their weapons into flowers. Now, imagine how angry this must have made a demon whose sole purpose, whose whole existence is to torment and destroy. So what does Mara do next? 
the demon lord sends in his sexy demon daughters to appeal to Gautama's flesh. They are dancing and writhing. They're summoning their best Cardi B WAP impression and nothing. The would-be Buddha just sat under the Bodhi tree in the face of this temptation and he remained perfectly still. One of my favorite passages of all time from the Bible that I love and I use it all the time during meditation is from Psalms 46.10, which reads, Be still and know that I am God. So now Mara, the Lord of Desire, has attempted two different attacks. One was physical, aided by the use of weapons. The other was temptation and appealed to the flesh. And now the third and final test would be a worldly one. And one that I think a lot of us can relate to and understand. In fact, I'm not just telling this story because it's a fun story to tell. I mean, I was in the army. I've got some stories to tell that would make a biker blush. But I'm telling this one because there is a practical side to it. Mara's last attempt to thwart Siddhartha's efforts at obtaining enlightenment was an appeal to the voice of others. Mara did not believe that enlightenment belonged to mortals. So he asked, Who can bear witness to your so-called enlightenment? And in perfect response, Siddhartha reached down with one finger and he touched the ground as if to say, The earth is my witness. And the earth shook in compliance. And Mara, the Lord of Desire, was defeated. Let's break this down and and find our second step in carrying our sacred space. What has the Buddha taught us about our own power? The first attack was with weapons, and the Buddha chose to remain in meditation, to remain solid in his practice. He had no concerns whether he would live or die. And of course, the weapons turning to flowers is a metaphor within a metaphor, as to say, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Your power is only that which I give to you. Meaning, no one has power over you, nothing has power over you, unless you give that power away. The second attack was sexual in nature. And how was this attack handled? Siddhartha remained still and refused to give in to the desire. So now he has conquered the flesh as well as the demons. The third and final attack was to use those in the world against him. Who might bear witness to this lowly man being enlightened? This is what I meant when I mentioned the saying in my mini-episode a few weeks back. If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Which has two meanings. There is no one else on this earth who can obtain enlightenment for you. Nor can they show you the way. This is because you are already the Buddha. So when Siddhartha touched his finger to the ground... 
This was in response to the suffering and evil that this plane of existence inflicts upon us. Because the Buddha remained grounded in his practice, instead of reacting to the evil set before him, he transcended the world. So if our first step is the cultivation of our center, our second step is being able to form an appropriate response in the face of adversity. The world wants your reaction. It takes power over you when you're reactionary. Like I talked about last week, the forces of the whirling gravitron and your body act upon one another. It keeps you pinned against the wall when your true nature is at the center. Hey, speaking of carnival rides and sideshows, check out this segue. How many of you have seen 20th Century Fox's The Greatest Showman, starring Hugh Wolverine Jackman and Zac Efron? Hugh plays P.T. Barnum, as in Barnum and Bailey Circus. Barnum was a man of little means and was reminded of this. He was reminded of this fact in marrying a young woman whose father was a wealthy merchant of some sort. As a young married couple, they struggled. Barnum loses his job uh, after it goes under, and he has to bring the news to his wife, who is played by Michelle Williams. But even though he had his back to the wall, P.T. Barnum persisted. His foundation was knowing that he had a greater purpose. He believed that he created his world and not the other way around. Eventually, Barnum secures a loan using the bunk shares of his former employer's shipping company, and he purchases a history museum, which would serve as precursor to much grander things. Now, what am I getting at? As Barnum transformed his museum into a full-on carnival of freaks, he began to build success. And with that came the scorn of a local reporter named James Gordon Bennett. Barnum's right-hand man brings him a copy of the Post, and the headline in the newspaper reads, A Primitive Circus of Humbug, speaking about Barnum's act. Think about that. How would any of us act if our local paper essentially called us a fraud? We'd be mortified. Not Barnum. He fashioned a crown to slip over his top hat that said, Prince of Humbug. This is turning your enemy's weapon into flowers. PT doesn't stop there. The hit piece Bennett wrote mentioned that Barnum's show was primitive degrading, and a circus. So the next time that the two meet, after this article is published, Bennett calls P.T. a fraud, to which he responds, a theater critic who doesn't enjoy the theater. Who's the fraud now? And if this wasn't enough, he mentions to Bennett that he actually liked his use of the word circus and throws a directional glance up at the freshly changed marquee of his building. Adding insult to injury, Bennett's scorn had been given a name, and that name was P.T. Barnum's Circus. There is no weapon formed that will prosper against you. 
It was because P.T. Barnum was under no delusion that he was running something as regal as the ballet or as respected as the theater that he was able to respond in the most appropriate of manner. The idea is not to be the Buddha. It's not even the attempt to be the Buddha or the Christ or anything divine. It's hard to dial in because we are all victims of conditioning of some sort. Barnum was successful not because he was divine, but because he was grounded in his practice. He was not putting on airs. He was acting as his authentic self. When you are grounded in something, as I spoke of in the very first episode way back, your aim at meaning and purpose is true. Now, couple purpose, couple purpose with carrying your sacred space into the world, and you are one step closer to conquering it. The cultivation of your center and the fierce awareness of responding appropriately, the courage to respond appropriately to the brutal forces of our reality, this is the path. Name one successful person who doesn't exercise these two principles. Oprah Winfrey said, challenges are gifts that force us to search for a new center of gravity. Don't fight them. Just find a different way to stand. How do you stand? Where do you stand? What do you stand for? If Siddhartha had reacted or even responded in any other way, do you think his doctrine would have survived over the centuries? He said, no one saves us but ourselves. No one can and no one may. We ourselves must walk the path. Damn. Allow me to preach for a minute. As the Buddha said, we ourselves must walk the path. Sometimes the path is straight and we face little adversity. Other times the path may be rocky and dark. We triumph over ominous terrain when we have established a foundation. We shine light on the dark when it is our purpose that is illuminated. We spend so much time waiting for divine intervention. We look outside of ourselves for a savior. When are we going to realize that the point of any religion or religious practice is to equip us with the knowledge that we are that divine intervention? Every time you're out in the world, your mission is to show the loving kindness of the Buddha. Your mission is to be the embodiment of Christ. Not once did Christ ever say, worship me. That wasn't his mission. But he did say, follow me. I am the way. Life is hard and it always will be. But as the Oprah said, challenges are gifts that force us to search to search for a new center of gravity. I am Nathan Alex Orona. Thank you for journeying with me today. I love you and peace be with you. Hey, beautiful ones. Thanks for listening today. Join me next week as we continue learning to carry our sacred space into the world. We'll be going over the third and final principle. So far, we've covered 
cultivation of the center and appropriate response. Next week, we will be exploring the idea of appropriate action. I love you and I'll see you then.